So let's go ahead and start class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have an opportunity to come and study today. We ask that your spirit will join us and your angels will join us and that all of our discussions will glorify your name. We pray in your holy name. Amen. We are doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly, Major Lessons for Minor Prophets, and the title this week is First Things First, Haggai. And um, Haggai, for those who don't know the history of Haggai, he was a prophet of the Old Testament, and it was believed by most scholars that he was a child when Israel was taken into captivity into Babylon. And therefore, he actually saw himself the first temple, or Solomon's temple. He was approximately 80 years old when he wrote his prophetic message that we have recorded in the book of Haggai. His entire prophetic work occurred in a span of four months. All, all that you have written there, from late August to mid-December of 520 B.C. And his book was written to inspire a disengaged and distracted Israel to resume its construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And the message was essentially, what are you doing? That's what his message What are you doing? You're spending all your wealth, time, energy on building up for yourselves, and you've, le- and you've neglected the house of the Lord. That's basically his message. As you think about this message from Haggai, what are you doing? All your money, all your money, efforts, and time going into self. You're not even paying attention to what the Lord and promoting the Lord's purposes. If we remember Old Testament, many of the stories of the Old Testament not only have a historical reality and events in history, they have an object lesson. They're chosen by God for Scripture because they teach a larger reality at the same time. And I'm wondering, do you see in the story of Haggai, the children of Israel after their captivity, in the, in the rebuilding of the temple, and their distraction, and his message, do you see a larger object lesson reality for the people of God? After Christ's victory 2,000 years ago, after his resurrection, after the first fruits were raised from the grave and taken into heaven with him, after the gospel began going forward to free minds on earth, after all of this, did the people of God experience an attack? And were they taken into captivity in any way? Were Christians in any way attacked and taken into captivity anyway? Well, you're not sure. Second Thessalonians 2, 3 and 4. Paul says, don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for the day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Anybody want to comment on what this is referring to? This man of sin setting himself up in God's temple. Did this happen in the first century while the apostles were still alive? Anybody awake? (laughs) So did this happen in the first century, this man of sin that sets himself up in God's temple while the apostles were still here on earth? No, it didn't. So this is not talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. That's not what this is talking about. It happened sometime later. Would we say that the temple, whatever it is, According to this, once the man of sin sets himself up in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God, would the temple be contaminated, corrupted, defiled in some way, if that happens? If the man of sin sets himself up in the temple, does it defile the temple? Yes. Of course it does, absolutely. So, if it's not the temple in Jerusalem that got destroyed in AD 70, what temple is it? The temple of the mind. The temple where the Holy Spirit dwells. Paul says the man of sin sets himself up there. How? How does he do that? How did he do that? 
we're thinking, and, we're, and I want you to be in your mind contrasting. Children of Israel got taken into captivity by Babylon. Babylon is a metaphor for confusion. They come out of Babylon, and they're still distracted and confused now on self. Self-focused, self-promoting. And they have a message to, hey, what are you doing? Get back to the Lord's business. Do we see that the church got taken captive into confusion? And that while there's been a reformation coming out of confusion, a refor- this reform, a reformation going on for hundreds of years now, that the church is still distracted and confused. Haggai is calling people back to the worship of the true God to get their priorities straight. Jesus said at the end of time, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We've driven out demons in your name. We've performed miracles in your name. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whose name are they doing this in? Are these Muslims? Are these Buddhists? These Jew- are these Jews? Who, who's, who are these people he's talking about? These are Christians. They're doing this in the name of Christ. But he doesn't know them. Paul says about the end of time that um, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves. What was the problem there in Israel in Haggai's time? What were they doing? Put, spending all their money on themselves, lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But does that not sound like our society? Watch the news. Yes. Does it not? And that's next, next, next sentence. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with them is what the text says. Have a form of God. This is not the agnostics and the atheistic professors teaching evolution in, in the university. It's not, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about religious people who have a distorted God concept and practice methods of the world. So at the core, what is the core that under, underpins, in your opinion, what underpins distorted religion? What's, what's the, the, the root to, to being religious, but yet practicing methods of coercive pressure and power over people. Misunderstanding God's character. Misunderstanding God's character in, in any particular way. Who he is and how he uses his power. Yeah, okay, who he is and how he uses his power. How many Christians, in fact, if, if you went to, the, to Caiaphas back 2,000 years ago and asked him who he served, who would he say, well, I'm serving the devil. <laughs> he believed he was serving. How many Christians who misrepresent God and are on the wrong side believe they're on the wrong side? If you went to any church this weekend and asked, how many of you all believe in a God of love? How many hands go up? <laughs> Do you see a problem? Just saying they've got a distorted view of God's character, those with a distorted view of God's character is going to go, Absolutely. They sure do. Not us, though. Isn't that what will happen? If Jesus said that in the time of the end, the Christians will be doing all these things in his name, miracle working and all this good stuff, but he doesn't know them. What does it look like to be on a mission for God? To claim you're on God's side, but not actually have the truth of his character and methods. What does that look like in action? 
Okay, I'll, I'll give you some hints to start with. How about the Crusades? How about burning people at the stake? Witch hunts. Witch hunts. Excellent. Absolutely. How about Inquisition? Now, whose name was all this stuff done in so far? Christ. Not just the name of God, the name of Christ. Holy Wars. Yes. How about engage in slavery and burn crosses in people's yards that are the wrong color? And what's the cross symbolic of? You notice they weren't burning a Star of David in their yard. They weren't burning a symbol for Islam in their yard. Does it trouble you that they were doing this in the name of Christ? How can that happen? Oh, that's all old. We don't, we don't have those problems today. So we don't shoot abortion doctors in the name of Christ. We don't mistreat, verbally put down, stone homosexuals in the name of Christ. Or any other way misrepresent God to be an arbitrary inflictor of pain and suffering on those who don't do what he says. The spirit temple is broken down. The minds of people have been taken captive such that they are able to do horrendous things in the name of Christ. Do we have a mission today as, as Haggai did, as the remnant coming out of Babylon? They were the remnant of Israel coming out of Babylon and their mission was to rebuild the temple. Are, or is there a remnant people coming out of confusion that are to rebuild the temple? Jump to Wednesday's lesson. We'll, we'll come back to the others, but let's jump to Wednesday's lesson. I'm going to keep on this theme. In the bottom pink section, asks us to read Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. And so I'm going to read Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. And it says, this is Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. The point of what we're saying is this. We do, not ha- we do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And then the lesson asks, whatever the glory of the earthly temple, we must never forget that it was only a shadow, a symbol of the plan of salvation. Think about what it means that right now Jesus is ministering in our behalf in the true tabernacle, the one made by God, not by man. So questions. What does it mean that Jesus is right now serving in the true tabernacle set up by God? What does that mean? It's a statement. What does it mean? There's a little smoke-filled room. He's burning incense. When you pray, your prayers get mixed with some incense, float over a a, a grand um, veil that the Father and the Shekinah is back there, and the Father now can handle your prayers because they've been mixed with with the merits and the blood of Jesus, or else he would be offended if it wasn't that way. Is that what's happening in heaven? Oh, she says he's ministering in us. The heavenly sanctuary somehow connected to us? Yeah. My thought was that Jesus is interceding in the Holy of Holies, communing face-to-face with God the Father on our behalf. 
uh, he, okay, he's communing face to face with the Father in the Holy of Holies in our behalf to achieve what? We want to use that language to achieve what? What's he ministering there to accomplish? To, well, he's pleading his blood to the Father. My blood, my blood, Father. Don't be mad. Don't be angry. Don't lash out against them. I've already paid their legal penalty. You use my blood and put it down against their account so you don't have to punish them for their sin. You know this is what's commonly presented. Within our church, there's a large church in the world that has not only Jesus, but Mary and all the saints pleading with him because he has to be pled with. This construct. What's he actually doing? Yes. I think in that picture we actually need to turn Christ around. Um, he's, he's beside the Father interceding for us. He's not facing him going, you have to look at me, not at them. They're both interceding in us. Okay, she says that he's beside the Father. Turn, turn the direction. So the, the, the Christ is the Father's envoy, the Father's ambassador, the Father's agent to accomplish the Father's purpose in us. Any text to support that theory? I like it. Any text? And I know you're thinking Romans 8, 31. I could see that right there. <laughs> if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his son but gave him up, how will he not also with him give us all things? Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus? No, he is at the Father's right hand and is also interceding for us. What's that word also mean? In a di- so the Father is interceding, and Christ is standing there interceding with the f- along with the Father, not to the Father. I, there's a text support exactly what you said. Yes. Is that pleading to the Father, or is that pleading to us? That's exactly right. It's pleading to us. Yeah. Christ pleads to convince us to trust the Father. Not to convince the Father to love us. For God so loved the world. That he gave. God was in the Son, reconciling the world to himself. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ bodily. So you see, Scripture teaches that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit were united in their united mission for our healing, restoration, and reconciliation. The obstacle to our salvation does not originate in God. The obstacle to our salvation originates... In us. We are the ones who need to be convinced. So the pleading, if you want to use that language, is Christ pleads with us to let him in. He stands at the door and knocks. If anyone opens, he will come in and sup with them. What door? The heart. Yes, he's pleading with us to let, let, let him in. So let's talk. So does the, does this, is there a cleansing? Do we have a, a message from scripture anywhere that says something about the sanctuary needs to be cleansed? Daniel. Daniel, anybody know? 8, 14. Until 2300 years and the sanctuary will be cleansed, right? What's that talking about? What's the sanctuary? What needs cleansing? Well, maybe we should ask the question first. And we're talking heavenly sanctuary now, aren't we? Heavenly sanctuary. What defiles the sanctuary in heaven? Sin. Let's go back to its, she says sin. You know, does that does that word ever get old for you? In other words, it's become so common and so worn and so used, it loses meaning. So if I were to say, what is sin? Separating myself from God. Does, is sin, sin separating, I guess you could call it that, or does sin also result in separation? Missing the mark. Missing the mark. Well... 
How about deviations from God's design? From the way he functions, from his protocols for life, the way he built his universe to operate, also known as his law. Yeah. So in heaven, what was the first thing? Let's talk about the heavenly sanctuary. What was the? What is it that contaminates? Because we talk about the sanctuary has to be cleansed. What is it that contaminates that sanctuary in heaven? I heard the word sin. Can you be more? Okay. What did you say? Lies. Lies. What were the first lies that contaminated? God didn't have their best interest at heart. He was trying to keep them. Who told those lies? Known previously as. Lucifer. Did that happen before or after mankind came into existence? Before. Okay, so the first thing, get your mind around this idea, people. The first thing to contaminate the sanctuary in heaven was not human sin. The first contamination of the sanctuary in heaven were lies told in heaven by Lucifer. That's the first contamination. What was Lucifer? If your question, what was Lucifer's role in heaven? According to scripture. And where's the covering cherub function? As far as we know from, from inspiration. Where's his physical occupation happen? In God's very presence, we call that, in, in, in the symbolism of the old sanctuary, the, the angels over the Ark of the Covenant in the Shekinah presence of God, the most holy place. So he begins lying where? The first thing to contaminate the heavenly sanctuary were Satan's lies about God in heaven, not our sin. Now, we think about, and this is why you um, uh, uh, find in, in Colossians 1.20 that through Christ, that God was working through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Heavenly things were reconciled through the work of Christ. Not just us, things in heaven. The heavenly sanctuary had to be cleansed of lies about God. What is it that cleanses lies? What is it that, that, that removes lies? Ajax? Clorox? Truth. Truth. Truth about what? About God's character. Absolutely right. So after this, this contamination in heaven, then something contaminated the spirit temple of mankind. What was the first thing to contaminate the spirit temple? Lies about God. Notice, the same contaminating agent. Lies about God told in heaven that angels believed, a third of them. And then lies about God that Adam and Eve believed. These were the first contaminating, before there was any vulgar, sinful behavior, before there was prostitution, before there was drug abuse, before there was embezzlement, before there was adultery, before there was any of the gross sins that we call sin, the first thing to contaminate the spirit temple were lies about God. Get your mind around this idea. Satan wants to distract us, to make us think that the real problem is the, what we call the bad behavior. The real problem, where it all starts, is believing lies about God. And thus the solution starts where the problem begins. The solution is the truth about God that wins us back to trust. Because when you trust him, then you open the heart and the spirit comes in and transformation happens. You get new motives, new desires. Your fear goes away and you stop living to protect self and watch out for self. And you start living to give and love others. But it only starts with the truth about God. So let's keep going on with this spirit temple idea of cleansing the temple. I found this quotation in a book called Christ Object Lessons, page 102. 
It says, the leaven of truth works a change in the whole man, making the coarse refined, the rough gentle, the selfish generous. By the truth, the impure are cleansed, washed in the blood of the Lamb. Do you believe that? Do do, do you agree with this interpretation? There's an interpretation just woven right in there. There's a definition given to a metaphor in this passage. The metaphor is the blood of the Lamb. And in this passage, this author defines the blood of the Lamb as the truth. Which, which does what to lies? It, trans, it destroys lies, transforming the person. Do you think... So what do you think about this idea that the blood of the Lamb is symbolic for truth? Agree or disagree? I think I've put you all to sleep today. Do you remember in the Old Testament symbolism, and I'm all about taking symbols and establishing the reality upon which they stand and what they represent. And so in the Old Testament, there was a lot of bloodshed. And that blood was sprinkled all over the temple. If we substitute the blood for truth, suddenly truth is being applied throughout the temple. Truth is being taken in to the temple. Where did Jesus say in John 6, his blood was to be applied? And he used the metaphor of blood and flesh. Unless you... Eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part with me. Was he talking cannibalism? No. No, he is using the metaphor unless you internalize the truth into your heart. Unless it's applied into your character, into your mind. Unless the truth sets you free. You can't be part with me. Because you won't trust me, because you won't know me. You have to know me to be part with me. So what is Christ then working in the heavenly sanctuary to cleanse? Could it be people? Have you ever heard it's record books? Think about that. Now we've talked a lot in here. Maybe I'm going to, I'm going to try to get you all to teach me something now. Because you guys, we all need to practice how we tell these things. Think of the two law constructs, imposed law, Roman emperor imposed law, natural law. And then talk to me about records. In the imposed law construct, what are the rec- what are the purpose of the records? They show how bad we are. Use it against you. Okay, the records come into evidence to prosecute you. And what do you want done when you go to court? You ask for the court to expunge the record, right? What's expunge the record mean? <laughs> to erase it from your record. This is what many Christians have have presented as the gospel. When you accept Jesus, he applies his blood to your heavenly record and your record gets expunged. The record of your sins are erased. Now let's think about that. I give this metaphor because this metaphor operates under the natural law view and it shows the absurdity of this view over here. You've got a child who is dying of terminal cancer. And there are medical records. Now, what are the records? What are the purpose of the records in the, this view? Because the laws of health are natural law, the laws upon which life operates. And, and, and there are records kept there too, aren't they? What are the purpose of those records? Diagnose. To diagnose, to reveal the problem, to, to document the treatment. Is it to condemn the, the, the sick person? No. 
No. And so you have a child dying of terminal cancer. You, you know, the doctors in, uh, say there's nothing to do. But you hear of a doctor who everybody that goes to this doctor gets a clean bill of health. Comes away 100% clean bill of health. So you hope against hope, you get an appointment. You go see the doctor. You bring your child. You give him the medical records. The doctor looks at the records. He opens it up, pulls out all the record of disease, sticks in blank white sheets of paper, hands it back to you and say, look, no more record of disease. You going home now. Are you happy with that? The record has been expunged. We've expunged all the disease. No, is expunging the record and expunging the disease the same thing? It is not. This view that is taught is a lie that gives false security that when people believe in, they believe my record's been erased while I'm still infected in, in character. And it gives false security. These are the people that we've talked about with Christ that he never knows them. They haven't been changed. But how about you go to the doctor with your, heavenly rec- with, your, with your medical record. He looks at the record of disease. He leaves the record as it is. He goes over to the child, intervenes in the child with a remedy that takes and puts the cancer into remission. Remission. The cancerous cells remit back to their precancerous, healthy state. Without the shedding of the blood of Christ, there is no remission of sin. Without the shedding of Christ's blood, our characters don't remit back to the way God designed them. And so the heavenly records will reveal our condition. The heavenly records will reveal all the interventions made by God to bring us remedy. And they will reveal one of two things. We've either partaken of the remedy, or we've persistently, continually, obstinately rejected his interventions to heal us. And the records show that too. So this blood of Christ being the truth, are you comfortable with that? The truth about God coming to your heart. So what then is Christ working to cleanse in the sanctuary? In heaven, the heavenly sanctuary. What's he cleansing? What would you say? Someone this afternoon at camp meeting says to you, hey, what do you believe about Christ? what's Christ doing in the sanctuary in heaven? What do you say? He's representing God correctly. What's he doing? What's his function? What's his activity? Do you understand the high priest every day, high priest only, morning and evening in the Old Testament sanctuary would come in and trim the lamps. Trim the lamps so they would burn brighter. Symbolism. What's it symbolize? What did Christ say we are? A what to the world? A light to the world. Who works on our heart to make us burn brighter? Christ, the high priest. What's he doing in the heavenly sanctuary? There you go, trimming our characters, making us shine bright. Let me read to you a couple of passages here. This is out of a book, Great Controversy, page 426, from one of the founders of our church. This is the view that historically we had. See if we still hold it. The coming of Christ as our high priest to the most holy place for cleansing of the sanctuary brought to view by Daniel 8.14. This is a big prophetic message, right? The coming of the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days is represented in Daniel 7.13. And the coming of the Lord to his temple foretold by Malachi 3 are descriptions of the same event. What's Malachi 3 say? See, Daniel 8, 14 only just tells you until 2200 days it's going to be cleansed. That's all it says. You don't really get any other information about what's happening. Look what, look what Malachi 3 says. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and make them 
like gold and silver. What is, what is this text saying that the, that the Lord's going to do when he comes to his temple? Purify. Purify who? Priests. The Levites, the priests. And of course, you know the text in Peter, 1 Peter 2, 9, that you are, don't you know that you're a priesthood of believers? You are the Levites. He's coming to, so what is Christ doing in his heavenly sanctuary? An actual work of rebuilding, regenerating, recreating, rewiring your neural network to make you like him, to remove fear and salvageness, to write in love. And the only way, yes, the only way you can do it is for us to understand the truth. As long as we hold the lies, it's, lies are an obstacle, aren't they? That's exactly right. And so Revelation 12, 11, talking about those people ready for translation, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Think what that means, functionally. What is our natural wiring? We're afraid. We're afraid of getting hurt. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of not being loved. We're afraid of being abandoned. We're afraid of being killed. We're afraid, 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 always watching out for self. This group of people, they're not like that anymore. Fear has been replaced with love. They don't, they're not afraid anymore. Wow. Aren't, aren't you looking to, don't you want to be free from fear? The only power on the universe that can free us from fear is, is God's love. Perfect love casts out fear. So then, this morning in my morning devotion, I was reading in a little book called That I May Know Him. I don't know if any of you have got that book. I read May 25, and then I went back and read May 24. Today's the 25th of May. And here's a, a couple paragraphs from the 24th and 25th in the devotional book, uh, That I May Know Him. See if you agree with this. The word of God has served as a mighty cleaver to separate the children of God from the, from the world. What's another way to describe the word of God? Truth, yes. Or the blood of Christ in the metaphor is another way, which is to be taken where? Into the heart. So this, this word of God, the truth, taken into the heart, separates the children of God from the world. As they are taken out of the quarry of the world, they are as rough stones, unfit for a place in the glorious temple of God. But they are brought into the Lord's workshop to be hewed and squared and polished that they might become precious accepted stones. This work of preparation for the heavenly temple. Which temple? Heavenly temple is going on continually during probationary time. We are naturally inclined to desire our own way and will, but when the transforming grace of Christ takes hold on our hearts, the inquiring of souls is, Lord, what will you have me do? When the Spirit of God works within us, we are led to will and to do of the Lord's good pleasure, and there is obedience in the heart and action. We are to occupy some place in the Lord's spiritual temple. We are. So when people talk to you about, do you believe there's a sanctuary in heaven? To ask them, yeah, absolutely. And then ask them, what do you believe the sanctuary is constructed out of? What are the building blocks of that heavenly temple? From if you, if you restrict yourself to inspiration, you'll find scriptures very clear. Know ye not that ye are living stones built into a house for the Lord? Okay, let me keep reading this. We are to occupy some place in the Lord's spiritual temple. And the important question is not as to whether you are large or small stone, but whether you have submitted yourself to God that he may polish you and make you emit light for his glory. If we are in the Lord's temple, we must emit light. You can't emit light 
if you're telling lies. Lies are darkness. You have to come to the truth about God. We are permitting, are we permitting the heavenly builder to hew and square and polish us? Have we faith to rest in him? The Jewish temple was built and hewn of stones quarried out of the mountain, and every stone was fitted for its place in the temple, hewed and polished and tested before it was brought to Jerusalem. And when all were brought to the ground, the building went together without the sound of axe or hammer. This building represents God's spiritual temple, which is composed of material gathered out of every nation and tongue and people of all grades, high and low, rich and poor, learned and ignorant. These are not dead substances to be fitted by hammer and chisel. These are living stones, quarried out of the world by the truth and the great master builder. The Lord of the temple is now hewing and polishing them and fitting them for their respective places in the spiritual temple. When completed, this temple will be perfect in all its parts. The admiration of angels and men for its builder and maker is God. Truly those who are to compose this glorious building are called to be saints. Do you, is it brilliant? Is it beautiful? Do you see the lie that has been, that has been foisted over the minds of people that this temple in heaven is some inanimate object made out of heavenly brick and mortar? And Christ is up there ministering in a smoke-filled room, covering up our records, and there's an investigation of records going on, not a cleansing of people. Alrighty, Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson. The lessons points out that the people had lost sight of God and their mission, and Haggai came with a message to which the people responded. The lesson states, they feared the Lord and showed this by worshiping him and giving him his due attention. Think that through. They feared the Lord and showed this by worshiping him and giving him due attention. The Lord needs our attention. And he'll get mad if you don't pay him attention. And he wants you to be afraid of him and pay him attention. Really? What do you think of this idea of worshiping God based on fearing him? Actually, I've I've received, I know this will surprise you, I've already started to receive some criticism of my new book. (laughs) One of the critics has pointed out that I suggest there's no reason to fear God and that God is not a God of, that induces fear. And they go on to argue that, in fact, God does induce fear and they actually cite that the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and therefore the Lord wants us to fear him and we should be afraid of him. Yes, you got a comment. But it changes my perspective when I think of the word fear as meaning respect. Yes, we're not talking awe, admiration, uh, that, that type of fear. That's not what we're talking about. Of course, the Bible does tell us, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Let's, let's do a little, little brain math, a little spiritual math. When Adam and Eve sinned, they ran and hid because they were afraid. Where did that fear arise? From where did that fear arise? Was God threatening them in Eden? Do we have any evidence that God was wrathful or angry or punitive or hostile or seeking to get them in any way? Was God their enemy? Did God want them to be afraid? Then where did this fear arise? From where? The Bible says that perfect love casts out all fear. Does that mean it casts out all admiration and respect? Is that what it means? 
No. What's it mean? What, what it means it casts out dread, terror, apprehension, anxiety, the fear of, of, of distrust. That's what it casts out. God is love. Perfect love casts out all fear. So if we come into a relationship with God in which love rules in our heart, what happens to fear? It goes away. But the Bible does say that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So how do we put all these together? See, some people have a very difficult time bringing texts that seem to be contradictory. Perfect love casts out all fear, but the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom. How do you put it all together? One way would be to understand the fear of the Lord at the beginning of wisdom could be the awe and admiration and respect of the Lord brings when you have that in your heart, then you want to emulate him. You begin to follow him. You listen to him. You take him seriously and wisdom begins. So one way to understand it is fear as awe and admiration and respect. But there is another way to understand it of that dread and terror, and that would be this way. If we're behaving in self-destructive ways like the Jews at Sinai, and God thunders, then like Israel, we may be afraid. And if the fear leads us to stop our destructive orgy of sin and begin listening to God, then wisdom begins at that point. But if we listen and come to know God, what happens to the fear? It goes away as evidenced by Moses at Sinai. When God thundered, Moses is standing right there, and you can read it in Exodus 20. There is no need to be afraid, Moses says. So where does the fear originate? Does it come from knowing God and the more you know him, the more terrifying he becomes? Or does it come from actually not knowing him and being alienated from him? Mm-hmm. Who wants us to be afraid of God? Isn't it a sad, sad commentary that well-meaning Christians actually attribute to God motives and methods of the enemy? It's terribly sad. So if God doesn't actually want us to be afraid then why does God act in ways, like thundering at Sinai, that he foreknows will cause, will, that we will respond to with fear? Why does he do it? If he doesn't want us to be afraid, but he knows that we will respond with fear, why does he do it? When we don't listen to the still small voice, sometimes he has to get our children. Beautiful, if y'all could hear that. Like a loving parent, he won't sit quietly by and watch us destroy ourselves. Before it's too late, he will do all in his power to get our attention and attempt to bring us to repentance and salvation. Even if at some point our rebellious ways are so loud and so noisy that we can't hear the still small voice, he loves enough to thunder to get through the noise of our sin, to get to us, to get us, get our attention. Very much like a parent giving a small child vaccines. You gotta jab that in their leg. Does the parent know beforehand that the child will misunderstand? Will cry? Might even be afraid? Does the parent want the child to respond that way? But does the parent love the child enough to do it anyway because it will ultimately bring protection for the child? This is what's happening in the Old Testament. God, you look at the people. Every time he thunders, what are the people doing? They're going over the cliff of self-destruction, and before he lets them go, he shouts, don't go, stop. He even threatens, I'm going to beat your bottom raw if you don't quit. (laughs) Tuesday's lesson. When the people responded to Haggai's message with fear, and they responded, they got afraid, and they responded, Haggai had an immediate new message. What was the message? Don't be afraid. 
So think about that example. You're giving your child vaccine. Your child has just got an ejection in the leg. It's burning. They're crying. And what's the parent say? It's okay. You don't need to be afraid. It's okay. Don't be afraid. It's going to be all right. Isn't that the exact message? The fear is not really appropriate. It's based out of misunderstanding. And this is exactly what happened with Israel. They didn't need to be afraid. They needed to be in awe and admiration and love. But if we fail to understand the truth about God and instead promote the idea that fear is what God wants, that he thunders and he wants us to submit in terror and apprehension, what does that actually result in? What does it lead to? What happens if we respond to God and obey him out of fear? There is a consequence. There's a result. She says it hardens the heart. Any, any other comments? Builds resentment. What else? Leads to rebellion. These are, anybody have any question about that? Also keeps us from being able to grow. Ah, it shuts down our growth. It actually activates the brain fear circuits, which impair the growth of the prefrontal cortex and the love circuits. We become more paranoid, more suspicious, more critical. We can become more intolerant. We become more judgmental. And we become like this abusive, fear-inducing God, and we will then have crusades and burn people at the stake and burn crosses in people's yard and stone people and get hold of the government to pass laws to make sure people do it our way and evict people from our membership who don't practice and do the rituals the way we do the rituals. This is what happens. We become intolerant. We don't become gracious and loving. And we become like Saul of Tarsus, who operated just like this, and took the temple guard to beat and imprison people who didn't worship the way he thought they should. But then Paul, he had a Damascus Road experience. He came to see and know Christ and God for who he really is and his methods. And he wrote in Romans 14, let everybody be fully persuaded in their own mind. Present the truth in love. Leave people free. His methods changed. I'm going to tell you, neurobiologically, his brain circuits changed. Brain circuits changed when we, when we come to the truth about God. So Fear and love are inversely proportional. Let's use the integrative evidence-based approach. Integrating the three threads of evidence, scripture. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out all fear. 1 John 4.18. Science shows when we worship a God of love, the brain circuits where we experience empathy and compassion grow stronger. We can measure this, and it calms the brain's amygdala, the fear circuits. We get lower heart rate and blood pressure. And experience. I want you to look at your own experience now. Think of a moment in your own history, when you were in a moment of genuine love, compassion for another person, you cared for them more than you cared for yourself. In that moment, how much fear did you have? None. Neurobiologically, when you enter a place like that, your brain circuits shut off your fear circuits, your love circuits shut them off. You don't experience that fear. But think about times when something threatens you. And you were terribly afraid at those moments when your fear and anxiety and fear of, of, of whether it's exposure, embarrassment, uh, financial loss, whatever it might be, was terribly high. What happened to your ability to put others first in that moment? Does it get undermined? Is it harder to do? Does it pull you in a different direction? Notice three threads of evidence, scripture, science, natural law, and experience all support the same thing. Those who want to teach a fear-inducing God concept must deny two out of the three threads. Actually, all three, and they twist one of the three. They twist the scripture, and they deny the other two threads. 
such worship actually destroys the image of God within when we worship a God who is a fear-inducing God. This is why it says in Zechariah, one of the Old Testament prophets, one of the minor prophets with major lessons, powerful verse, very powerful verse. Not by might, nor by, but by the way my spirit works. How does the spirit work? It's called the spirit of? Spirit of both. Spirit of truth and the spirit of love. That's what the spirit, spirit of truth and love. How does truth and love, can you get people to love you with might and power? With force of arms. God cannot get what he desires by using the celestial army. The angelic host cannot come down here with flaming swords and get your love. This is why Christ died for us. To bring the truth about his true nature and win us freely to his cause and his side. Let us know the truth about how he operates and his methods. The lesson states that in regard to the people in Haggai's time, that, quote, the godly responded, the response of the leaders and the people testified to the spiritual reformation that had taken place. And I thought about that term, the godly response. The godly response. The godly response is, think about that term. And does the idea pop in your mind right now, does it go, does it matter which God they believe in? Will that impact their godly response? Will it? For instance, when the call went out 1,000 years after Christ for people to come to the Lord's cause with a godly response, what did the people of Europe do? Crusades. Crusades. Did they think they were serving the Lord's cause? Absolutely. Did they have a distorted view of God? So a godly response is predicated on who you understand God to be, isn't it? And if you hold a distorted God concept, then your godly response will be ungodly. That's pretty profound. So what's the point? Well, remember that quote Jesus warned in the last days? There'll be people claiming they're serving him, but he doesn't know them. How do we know? Is it possible for Christians to attend church faithfully, to be regular tithe payers, offering givers, to be teacher, deacon, elder, bishop, pastor, priest, dedicated their life to serving Christ and still not know him and actually be working for the enemy? Is it possible? So, what can we do to ensure that doesn't happen to us? Ken, you got an answer for us. Well, it was interesting. Uh, when I was in college, uh, one of my professors had on his desk a little thing that said, when the righteous are ungodly, dot, dot, dot. And I find a whole new perspective in that after having studied here. Yeah, thank you. So what can we do to insulate ourselves, to protect ourselves from being one of those who believe that we're representing Christ, but we're actually working in the enemy. I wrote some things down that can be protective, yes. Well, this is eternal life that we know God. And how many on the other side think they do? They do, but you know, the interesting thing is that the same text you quoted earlier, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone let, hear my voice and let me in, I will come in and sup with him. Mm-hmm. It's not and he with me. Yeah. yeah, it's not just coming in. He brings food. 
Spiritual food. Bring yeah. spiritual food. Mm-hmm. When he comes in, and he also portrayed that in the feeding of the multitudes, bring me what little you've got. But whoever you are, whatever you've got, I will multiply that and make it amazing. Or the woman at the well, you, you want to ask for water. You ask me, I'll give you living water. Well up over it. What is that living water? What is it literally? What is the living water symbolic of? Love. I'm going to say she was love. Love wells up to many. She doesn't have the ability to give life to other people but she has the ability to let God's love overflow so she can love other people. Remember what he said, it will well up inside you and overflow too many. She's not the source of life. She can't overflow life to people, but she can overflow love to people. Yes? Yes, Yes, it's love. It's the love of God that pours into our heart that overflows, and the more you give, the more you will receive. Yeah. Tell God's kingdom were so integrative evidence based approach is what I would suggest. Number one, that whatever whatever beliefs you hold about God, make sure they're true in all three threads. Make sure they're true, all three threads support them. Go to scripture, putting God at the center of scripture. Stop the egocentric, self centered, human centered view of scripture. Much of what is taught in Christianity is how I can be saved, how I can get my sins paid for, how I can be pardoned. It's all, it put me at the center. Self-centered view of Scripture. Take self out of the center. Put God back in the center. And then make Jesus the lens through which you draw your conclusions about God. If you see me, you've seen the Father. Whatever conclusion, you have to see Jesus doing it. Then put, in the pract- put into practice the principles of love. Practice them. See what happens in your life. Loving others. Giving. Caring. Being compassionate. And then practice the, the three big ones. Truth. Presented in love, leaving people free. Those big principles. Um, Thursday's lesson, we have a couple of minutes. Uh, we're going to maybe run over just a minute or two since we started a little bit late. First paragraph in Thursday's lesson. The final message from the Lord to Haggai was given on the same day as the previous one in order to complement it. The Lord warned of a coming destruction of kingdoms and nations during the day of the Lord's judgment. But on that, uh, but on that same day, the prophet said that the servant of the Lord will accomplish God's appointed task of salvation. Um, this, uh, this we can best understand as being fulfill, fulfilled ultimately and fully only at the second coming and during all that follows it. What do you understand God's judgment to be? That you're healed or not. I want you to think through the lenses of the two laws. If you view God's law as a law of love, the design protocol upon which life is built, then we see something that Linda is suggesting over here. God's judgment is then, could be called an accurate diagnosis. He judges accurately your condition. He diagnoses properly the state of your heart and what's going on within you. Accurate diagnosis. His judgment could also be that physician's therapeutic judgment. What is the best intervention? I judge that you have this condition, and I also judge this is the best treatment. This is my judgment for you. And we have therapeutic interventions, God's judgments being placed upon us, his interventions to heal, to to bring to repentance. I judge that thundering right now at Sinai is the best intervention. And then we also have the final, end-time diagnosis of the wicked that they are terminal and nothing more can be done. And we read this in Hosea 4.17. Ephra- this is God's words. Ephraim is joined to his idols. Leave him alone. That's a judgment. Is it not? Yes. It's a diagnosis of a state of being. God in the end judges that for some they are beyond healing. 
They have destroyed the faculties that respond to truth and love, and there's nothing more that, he, that can be done for them. Yes. Thus, oh, I can say just like people look at a physician and see what he has done for others, they judge whether they want to go to that doctor or not. So God is being judged. Yeah, absolutely. He's being judged in which lens you look through. And so he sets them free in the end to reap what they have chosen. He doesn't put it upon them. He lets them have it. And what have they chosen? Separation from him, the source of life. And he grants the most merciful and gracious and kind outcome he can, which is eternal non-existence, not eternal suffering because they separate from the only source of life. Christ, in this view, is is viewed as God's means of revealing the truth and providing the remedy to cure cure us and restore sinful humanity back into God's original ideal. Thus, those who accept Christ are judged or diagnosed by God as having been healed and restored to righteousness. Because it's no longer I that live, but Christ actually lives in me. The law has been written on the heart and mind. We've been renewed in the inner man. The heart has been circumcised by the spirit. The heart of stone has been removed. The heart of flesh has been put in. This is not metaphor. It's a literal, actual, rejuvenating, transforming process that we become new people in heart and motive. But if we view God's law through the lens of the imposed Roman construct, then God's judgment is seen as a legal verdict for or against the sinner. A penalty determined by God is externally inflicted upon the unrepentant to make them pay for their disobedience, either inflicted torment and then execution or eternal torment afflicted by God. Either one is taught. Christ, in this view, is punished by his Father in our place. Christ's blood is a commodity to be obtained and bartered with the Father to appease his anger and wrath at sin and pay our legal debt to the heavenly government. Those who accept the blood of Christ are legally declared not guilty, even though they're still rebellious in heart, and the Father is legally prevented from tormenting and executing them. Which view do you think is more reasonable? Which view is more consistent with the evidence? Which view makes you trust God more and willing to open your heart to him? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of love who when he built his universe constructed it to operate in harmony with your own nature with principles of love and beneficence that can never be changed. Sadly, we find ourselves operating on other principles at time out of harmony with the way you built things and, and find ourselves suffering under the weight of sin in this universe, in this planet. We thank you that you sent Christ to bring us the truth about you to win us back to trust and now we ask for your spirit to come into our hearts to take all that Christ has achieved and reproduce it in us. Take away our fear. Fill us with love for you and love for others and and an abiding trust in, in how the future will unfold, that it will unfold according to your will and we can follow where you lead because you will ultimately lead us back into heaven with you. We pray in your holy name. Amen.